Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. This is our 90th episode so we are once again headed overseas and this time our case covers a terrorist attack that occurred in Madrid, Spain in 2004. Our next international episode, number 100, will go back to Australia and will be the last international episode we cover before CrimeCon 2023. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. In July of 1936, in what many would call a prelude to World War II in Europe, the country of Spain entered into a civil war. The heart of the fighting was between the Republicans, who were loyal to the government, and the Nationalists, a group fighting for change. Spain had spent centuries under the rule of a monarchy, and it wasn't until 1931 that they had a democratic-style election to decide who would rule the country. The first five years of democracy did not go well as different factions attempted to gain economic favor that only benefited the people in power. After just five years, some people decided a change was needed and a civil war between the parties began. There was no singular dividing factor for people. There was division between economic class, religion, and political ideology, and everyone was seemingly fighting for something different. The war lasted three years and was filled with atrocities on both sides, with the final death toll somewhere between 500,000 and a million fighters and civilians killed. It drained the country of money, and Germany moved in at the end of the war, offering money in exchange for unlimited access to much-needed wartime resources and a military alliance. It would take the devastation and rebuilding of Europe after World War II to restore some calm to the region, but the political landscape of the country stayed highly divided. That division was still high in 2004 when a terrorist attack on the nation's rail lines occurred. The investigation into the bombing was one of the most defunct investigations of all time as the leaders in Spain were more worried about using the bombings for political capital than discovering the truth. This is the case of the 2004 Madrid train bombings. To understand the complexity of the situation surrounding the terrorist attack we are covering in this international episode, we first need to look at the world stage during the time leading up to 2004. In 2003, the Spanish government was controlled by the Partido Popular. This political party was more aligned with conservative religious views and would be most similar to the Republican Party in America. Its main opposition came from the Spanish Socialist Workers Party a party with a more left-leaning view, most similar to the Liberal Party in America. And whenever I try to cover one of these international cases, I know that most of my audience lives in America, so I do try to make things easier for, for people in America to understand. I know that when it comes to world history and sometimes uh, 
global news. Americans aren't always the, the, the greatest at understanding everything that's going on in the world. And for example, uh, I had actually never heard of the Spanish Civil War of 1936 to 1939, and I had no idea. It makes sense. I always wondered why Spain joined Germany during World War II, why, why there was an alliance. I understood Italy with its leadership situation and, and how that kind of aligned with Hitler, but Spain was always an outlier to me, but it makes a lot more sense now that basically they were in desperate need for money and they were pretty weak considering they'd just gone through the Civil War. So basically they, they bent to Germany's will at that point. Uh, they didn't really have a choice. I mean, I guess they did, but they needed money and they needed uh, military support because they'd lost a lot of their military aged men during the civil war so again it's it's i often learn a lot while i'm researching these cases and that's why i like to do those little history introductions i, I try to find something that corresponds to what i'll be talking about later in the the main part of the episode and so when i was looking for something like this as first i was looking at the uh, history of the railroads in Spain because obviously this is going to be an attack on Spanish trains and then I realized that just like what we're experiencing here in America right now with a very divided uh, uh, political landscape it's it's probably one of the most politically divided landscapes that I can remember in my lifetime uh, between people that are either conservative leaning or liberal leaning there's there's not as many moderates like myself out there right now. You kind of had have to pick a side and, and take a strong stance at this point. At least that's what it feels like. And so when I was researching this and I saw, okay, something like this in terms of divisiveness led to a civil war is less than 100 years ago in Spain, I figured that would be a good thing to cover. And it would lead into the fact that despite the civil war going on, despite coming out of World War II, they still have this very divided political structure within Spain. It's divided because of what I mentioned, which is social classes, religion, and political ideology. And it is going to play a major part into the investigation of these bombings, into finding out the truth behind who is responsible for the bombings. It's one of those, it's not going to be as much of a true crime case. Uh, there will be some true crime aspects to it that we'll, we'll discuss, but it's it's more about how politics can get in the way sometimes of the truth. And that's that's what we'll what we'll focus on here. And as I mentioned, so just to recap here, we're talking about 2003 and the Spanish government has, and I'm gonna to refer to them by their names instead of their abbreviations. I think it's easier to keep track of. If you remember, just the Partido Popular is is the Republican side of things and the Spanish Socialist Workers Party. Um, obviously they have socialist in the name, so they're gonna be the more left-leaning. So as I refer to them later in the episode, try to remember that. I'll also try to, I'll also try to keep you guys up to speed as I talk about these political parties and how they, they play into this. And in 2003, the United States made the controversial and often unpopular decision to invade Iraq. While the invasion of Afghanistan after 9-11 to provide stability in the region and overthrow the Taliban was generally accepted, 
the invasion of Iraq under the auspice that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction and provided material support to terrorism was much less accepted both in America and on the global scale. Regardless, many countries in Europe that had formed strong alliances with the United States agreed to support the invasion of Iraq, and this led to a lot of political anger in those countries. Spain was not an exception, with the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party against the invasion and the party in power, the Partido Popular, supporting the war in Iraq. And I guess if you go back to 2003, we're talking about 20 years ago, it wasn't so much, and I understand this, it wasn't so much the European countries per se wanting to go along with the United States. It was pretty clear when President Bush at that time period used the term, you're either with us or against us. I didn't agree with that term at that time, and I still don't. Don't get me wrong, I fully support our military. I was a member of it during this time period, but it was one of those situations where it definitely felt much more like it was the the bully in the neighborhood forcing the kids to get together and, and play a tackle football game that they didn't want to play than it was a bunch of kids getting together deciding to play a tackle football game. And that's something that I thought that way back then and I, I still think that way to now if, if countries on their own wanted to support this invasion of Iraq without feeling like they were bullied into it then that was their choice but I definitely feel like the United States was flexing its muscles at that point and wanted to invade Iraq and and I don't want to get this too far into a, a political discussion here but the one thing I will say is that Iraq and Saddam Hussein came out several times saying that he had weapons of mass destruction. Now, I would hope that groups of, of intelligence like MI6 and the CIA and, and different organizations like that would have known the truth whether or not uh, Saddam had a whole bunch of weapons of mass destruction. Now, he had used chemical warfare against people before. So again, it wasn't a big stretch to believe that he had these capabilities and the fear was that he could give some of these weapons of mass destruction to terrorists to do something even worse than 9-11 but at the same time I think there were definitely diplomatic ways to work around it especially again the fact that during the invasion no weapons of mass destruction were found it either makes me believe that Saddam was lying the whole time or we knew this and just used it as a reason to to invade but unfortunately the middle east is an area of extreme instability and once we made the decision to invade it was one of those and and remove this evil dictator we were kind of making a bed that we were gonna have to sleep in for a while and eventually when we pulled out that was what caused isis so again this the we're not going to know all this in 2003, but just know if we go back to that political landscape of 2003, there's a lot of warmongering, there's a lot of political strife as, in regards to what was going on in the Middle East and Afghanistan and terrorism and the war on terror and everything like that. So all of that stuff is going on at the time that we're discussing here. And again, you had the political party that was in power, which was more Republican-leaning, with Spain supporting the war in Iraq. And again, don't know how much that is support versus just going along with what the United States is doing. 
and the, the minority party, the Spanish Socialist Workers Party, saying we shouldn't be sending troops to Iraq, we shouldn't be supporting this invasion. So in March of 2004, Spain was preparing itself for its national elections. As March 14th approached, which is their election day, the air was thick with political strife. Despite this, the Spanish people needed to continue with their lives, and on March 11th, three days before the election, many of them boarded the commuter trains that operated both inside and between Spain's major cities. One of the boarding locations was a station at the city of Alcala de Henares, located just northeast of Madrid. Locals from the city and various small towns in the area would get onto various trains to head into Madrid for work or personal reasons. And this is something urban cities in America understand a little bit better. At least the major urban cities have usually pretty decent train networks. I'm thinking of areas like New York, Boston, I guess there's there's several large cities, Chicago, where it doesn't make any sense to drive a car into the city. You'll get on a train. These trains operate from the suburbs or the outer reaches of the city and will run into the city and then through the city. My city, Minneapolis area, has kind of experimented with this over the last 20 to 30 years, adding these light rail lines in. They've been successful to a certain degree and in other, other aspects they haven't. It's very difficult to get people to give up their vehicles, uh, at least especially in Minnesota for, for various reasons. You don't want to be standing out at a bus stop or a train location when it's 15 below and 30 below wind chills. Uh, it's much nicer to be in a personally heated vehicle at that point. But anyway, Europe is much different. They've got this amazing train network that runs between the countries, between cities within the countries, and then within the major cities themselves. And a lot of people use these trains. And so on March 11th, these trains are going to be packed with people headed into Madrid for work and personal reasons. And depending on which train you entered, it would bring you to a different part of Madrid, and many trains left the station at various times throughout the morning. Four of those trains departed the station between 7.01 and 7.14 that morning and traveled to their designated section of the city. Train number 21431 was the first train affected by the bombing after it arrived at the Atocha station in central Madrid. At 7.37 a.m., security cameras at the station captured an explosion which was followed by two consecutive blasts at 7.38 a.m. The bombs exploded in the 4th, 5th, and 6th cars, and a 4th unexploded device was found in the first car by a Spanish bomb squad after the train had been evacuated. It had been set up as a secondary device to explode while first responders were evacuating the train, but it failed to detonate and the bomb squad was safely able to destroy it. And we just talked about in the Richard Jewell episode, uh, episode 89, if you're listening to these in sequence, I've explained these secondary devices. They're a bomb set up in a location where after the initial bombs have gone off, the idea is you've likely drawn in a lot of first responders, be it police, EMTs, and you're going to then further hamper the this rescue effort and create more victims by detonating a bomb once these first responders show up. And one of the reasons these secondary devices are so dangerous when it comes to first responders is because, I don't know that I've talked about this, uh, this is going to be, this episode isn't as long, so I should have time to talk about it, but 
people don't realize in America, the ratio at any given time of a working police officer in a city to citizens is roughly somewhere in the range of one per every 10,000. Now, rostered the number of hired police officers in a city is usually one for every thousand. But at any given time, because some of those, and I'm talking about patrol officers, uh, if you subtract the patrol officers that aren't working that shift, they're either off or going to be working later in the day, you subtract supervisors, detectives or investigators, administrators, and just officers that should be working that shift but are are going to take off that day. The minimums for most cities, at least suburbs, I I don't know how it corresponds to urban areas as well because I don't have as much experience with large urban police departments, but from my experience with suburban police departments, it's it's roughly at any given time you have one officer working for every 10,000 people. And and it, that will depend on the crime rate of the city too. Some cities with higher crime rates will have more police officers. They just more calls for service. Similar sized cities, if they have a major attraction, like I worked in a, a city, a suburb just south of Bloomington, Minnesota, which has the Mall of America in it. And the Mall of America with its large draw of people and it is a large law enforcement need so even though that city may have a certain population they have to take into account the population of the mall at any given time and and cover that accordingly so again it's not going to be a direct ratio there's going to be some factors but just as a as a rough rule it's somewhere in that area so if you can harm a police officer or two or three or more you're often going to get to a situation where you're lowering that ratio even further and hampering their efforts, plus you've created more victims that need to be uh, triaged, need to be treated, need to be rescued, and then you're going to further hamper efforts because people are going to worry about more secondary devices. So again, these secondary devices can be extremely devastating. We saw it in the case of uh, the cover when we cover Richard Jewell and Eric Rudolph set up a secondary device outside of an abortion clinic and he was able to de- detonate that one and injure a whole bunch of people so in this case all of these bombs are going to be remote detonated via cell phone so I think the plan was for somebody to stay in the area and remote detonate this bomb as a secondary device but they either got cold feet worried that somebody would recognize them worry that that or something happened to that person or again it just they tried to detonate it and it failed and train number 21435 was just about to leave the El Pozo del Tio Romundo station when two bombs detonated at 7:38 a.m. affecting the train's fourth and fifth double-decker passenger cars two unexploded bombs were found in the train's second and third cars One was found shortly after the blast and detonated in place by the bomb squad. The fourth bomb wasn't found for several hours and was removed and detonated. And it did talk about one of these bombs. All of these bombs are going to be what are called backpack bombs. They're going to be placed into something the size of a a large backpack or like a military rucksack size backpack. And so when it's sitting, a lot of these trains have kind of areas to drop luggage or 
store some larger items that you don't have to keep with you. Some of these bombs were placed into those areas, and if they didn't detonate, of course, they were then part of, of luggage. So I think it was something about one the, the fourth bomb on this train that didn't explode was found, I think, a couple hours later in the stack of luggage, and was taken to a local park and detonated. Train 2173 fell victim to a single bomb at 7.38 a.m. as it was about to leave the Santa Eugenia station. The bomb affected the fourth car and no un additional unexploded bombs were found. And train number 17305 was less than a kilometer away from the Atocha station when four different bombs exploded. It had been slowing down to wait for the other train, which was the first one we talked about, train 21435, to leave the Atocha station and the bombs affected the first, fourth, fifth, and sixth cars. Emergency services rushed to the different sites and a field hospital was established at the gymnasium across from the Atocha station. The most critically wounded patients were taken to nearby hospitals that were quickly overrun due to the massive number of victims and all the attacks occurring almost simultaneously. And again, these were all cell phone bombs and so each one had to be triggered via a call from a cell phone. And so th there was a obviously a plan in advance that each person responsible for the, placing these bombs was going to call in and uh, explode each of the bombs that they were responsible for. And so most of these bombs, again, there's, there's one that went off at 737, either somebody got anxious and, and called it in early, or their timing was just a little bit off. But most of these bombs are all going to go off at 738 at different parts of the city. Um, they have these two trains kind of by each other, about a kilometer apart from each other, and then uh, the other two trains are, are spread throughout the city. And so you've got this massive amount, uh, I think we're going to talk about it, but it's over 2,000 people injured, and eventually I think 193 are going to die, but you've got just a huge amount of people all trying to seek medical aid at the same time. Now they're smartly going to set up this field hospital, which is basically just a triage center, when I say triage, triage is actually a, a military invention to go through wounded people as quickly as possible. You don't have time to do a full physical exam of every person. So the first thing you do in a triage is you find everybody who's quote unquote the walking wounded. Anybody who can ambulate themselves out of the situation to help, you want to clear them out. And that's going to clear out in most cases the majority of people are going to be able to just get up and walk away. Now they might might have major injuries, they could even have somewhat critical injuries, but at least they're able to move under their own will and get themselves to hospital or care. Then you're going to have people going through who's left, the people that can't move, and you're going to start to mark people as yellow, which means they can they can wait to receive care, they'll, they'll likely survive their injuries going to go to red, which is you're critically wounded, which means they need to get out right away and seek medical care or they're going to die. And then you're going to have tags that, for, that are black, and those are for deceased people or people that are, are so close to death that there's no way to save them. Because if you spend all of your time and resources trying to save one or two or three severely critically injured people, that could mean that 20, 30, 40 of the critically injured people that could be saved might end up dying. And so unfortunately, triage, it's 
not a system designed to save everyone. It's a system designed to save as many people as possible. So they're likely going through some form of a triage. Most law enforcement, emergency medical services are trained in mass casualty incidents like this to, to conduct a triage. They're likely going to tell the people that can get yourself to a hospital. Then they're going to take as many of the yellow and red patients as they can and get them treated at the hospital. Sometimes it's just just to get wounds kind of covered until they can get them off to a, to a different hospital. And so th this, this type of madness is going on basically for the hour or two after these bombs go off. And keep in mind at the same time, they keep running into these unexploded bombs, at which point they have to, the bomb squad either has to decide whether to remove the bomb and, and destroy it in some other location or whether they have to destroy it in place, which when you already have victims that are, are critical or deceased in the area, that's another thing you have to take into account. The total number of fatalities from the attacks reached 193. This included one victim who passed away in 2014 after failing to regain consciousness and spending 10 years in a coma. So a lot of the numbers, if you go back to, I think within the day or two after, the number was a 190. And by the time they were putting people on trial for this case, I think it was around 191 or 192. And then you've got this last fatality in 2014. And... Again, that's not going to be covered, obviously, in a lot of the 2004-2005 articles, but in 2023, they've deemed the number to be 193 killed during this terrorist attack. And as mentioned before, roughly 2,050 people were injured during these attacks. Three days after the attacks, a spokesman claiming to be with the terrorist group Al-Qaeda made a videotape that was distributed to media outlets in Europe. During the video, he claims his organization planned and carried out the attacks on March 11th. For the days leading up to the election, the two political parties had taken every opportunity they had to try and sculpt a narrative around the bombings that best supported their chances to win the national election. I think in politics, there's a phrase, never let a good crisis go to waste. And unfortunately, that's very true, and it doesn't matter what country, it doesn't matter which political party, if there's a crisis that supports political parties' stance on something, they will jump all over it and, and use that to the nth degree to make sure that they have the best chance of winning an election, and in this case, it's three days before the elections. And the ruling party, the, the Partido Popular, tried to claim that the attacks were carried out by the ETA, an armed Basque far-left separatist group more aligned with the value of the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party. This would shift any association of the attacks from Islamic terror, which would be blamed on the Partido Popular for their support of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So you've got this political party that's in power, and they're going to look at it and say, hey, we supported the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, so if this is Islamic terror, it indirectly we're responsible for the deaths of many of our citizens. So we can't have it be related to Islamic terror. This ETA, this armed Basque far left separatist group, they're more aligned with our opposition. So if we blame them for the attacks, people will look at it and say, if we put the Spanish Socialist Workers Party in power, there's likely going to be more attacks like this. This is this is aligned with their values. This is what they want. And 
This is actually gonna cause a whole lot of issues because the finger pointing and political posturing led many Spanish citizens to cry out for the government to tell them the truth. After the election on March 14th, the ruling party lost their political control. And while some analysts believe it was because of the bombings tied to Islamic terror, the majority of analysts believe the behavior of the party in regard to hiding the truth in the days after the bombing is what cost them the election. And this is often what we see. It's it's not the it's not the actual scandal itself. It's the attempt to cover it up that people don't like. And this is it was something about the number of people that showed up to vote was much higher than expected. And most people, when they were polled, said they showed up because they didn't trust the political party in power after these bombings. So had there not been the bombings, I think the elections would have been different. Had the ruling party come out right away and been more truthful and open with the public, especially to include, hey, we're looking at all avenues, this could be Islamic terror. I don't know that they would have still won the election, but at least if they lost, it would it would be because people felt they'd made the wrong choice in supporting the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, but it wouldn't be because they didn't trust the government, which is ultimately what they decided. The majority of, of people polled basically said they needed to get the people out of power because they didn't trust them anymore. On April 2nd, another bomb was found that was believed to be related. 12 pounds of the same explosive used in the train bombs was found attached to a Spanish high-speed train line. This bomb lacked a remote detonation device like the ones used on the trains and instead had a long wire attached to it, but no control device was found on the other end of the wire. And when I read this, my initial thought was, well, maybe it's not related, then maybe it's a copycat terrorist group trying to jump on the back of a pre-existing kind of the reign of terror per se. This is roughly three weeks after the the previous bombing. So maybe somebody got to the area and decided they were also going to try to attack a train and, and build off the terror from before. And, and I mainly based that on the fact that it was a different remote detonation device and bombers usually stick with the same detonation device. But then I thought about it and said, these are high speed train lines. So the train is going to pass a certain part on the track in a very short amount of time. And these remote detonated bombs via cell phones, I guess if you had a remote detonated device using radio waves from say like a handheld walkie talkie, that might work a little bit better. But in, in order for a instantaneous response to the detonation, the absolute best way to ensure that there's no miscommunication is to have a wired detonation. So it's very possible that there was some type of a plan in place to put the detonation device attached to this wire at any point. And this is very simple. When I was in the military, I trained to use Claymore mines. And this is a very similar situation where you have an explosive and then you run a wire from that explosive that's attached to the blasting cap that gets inserted into the Claymore mine. You run that wire back to a, a position of cover and concealment, and then you wait until the enemy gets close uh, in, in the kill blast area of the Claymore mine, and then we have what's called the clacker, which was just a little device that you, when you squeezed the, the two parts of the device together, it completed the electric circuit, which sent the signal through the wire to the Claymore, and we were always trained to say Claymore, 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 and clack the device three times, 
Well, the first time I ever fired one off for real, I go to say Claymore, Claymore, and as soon as I hit the clacker, it went off, and I thought I screwed something up. And I realized the the other two times you say Claymore and squeeze a clacker, those are just built-in redundancies in case the the first one doesn't go off, in case you don't get the, the complete the circuit the first time. Um, so it's, the military has a ton of things where redundancy is built in, but this is one of them. But I mean, it was instantaneous from the second I, I squeezed the clacker that Claymore was going off. So this may have been something very similar where if you're trying to time out as a train passes and it's a high-speed train traveling in excess of 90 miles an hour, there's going to be a very short window in which the explosion is going to affect the, the train itself. Now, you could blow the tracks at any point and send this high-speed train off the rails and probably cause a significant amount of damage by derailing the train but if you're looking for maximum damage you want this explosion to both derail the train and cause explosive concussion damage on the train itself again a wired bomb is going to be your best chance to uh, instantaneously explode the bomb on april 3rd a tip led spanish police to an apartment in a town south of madrid the apartment was believed to be a logistical base of operations for the terrorist group that conducted the March 11 attacks. Spanish police attempted to raid the apartment, and the suspects yelled aloud in Arabic before detonating suicide vests and killing all six members of their group and one Spanish police officer, and 11 officers were injured in the blast. Evidence found in the apartment linked the group to the train bombings, and intel was found that informed police as to how the members obtained the bomb-making material and explosives, as well as the cell phones used for the remote detonation. The suspects were identified as mainly Moroccan Islamic extremists with ties to Al-Qaeda, and one of the suspects had rented a farmhouse outside Madrid where it was believed the group assembled the bombs used during the March 11th attacks. Police would state that fingerprints lifted from the farmhouse matched those of the suspects that killed themselves during the attempted raid. And the six that were killed in the blast were Sarhain Ben Abdelmajid Fakit, known as the Tunisian. He was a suspected ringleader of the attack. Jamal Amadan, a Moroccan believed to have led the bombers the day of the attack. Alikima Lamari, an Algerian. He was a known member of the Algerian terrorist group, and he was actually convicted of being in a terrorist group, but released from prison in 1999 after spending only two years of his 14-year sentence behind bars. The remaining three men were Muhammad Akcha, Rashid Akcha, and Abin Abi Kunja, all Moroccan men believed to have planted bombs on March 11th. The Spanish police worked hard to identify other members of the group that either went into hiding in Spain after the attacks or fled the country. Several suspects were detained early in the investigation. A retired Spanish miner named Jose Emilio Suarez Trichores was arrested for providing the explosive materials to the terrorist group. Although the mining explosives used were supposed to be under strict control, Jose was able to use some contacts from his time as a miner to obtain a large quantity of GOMA-2 that was used during the bomb making. He was convicted of several crimes and sentenced to 34,715 years in prison. Jamal Ziogam was detained two days after the attack after cell phones used by the bombers were traced to his cell phone store. He was found to be more than just a supplier as it was reported that eyewitnesses saw him leave a pack on one of the trains. He was tried and convicted for all the murders and sentenced to 42,922 years in prison. A Moroccan-born Spanish man named Othman El Ganoi 
was suspected of being the second-in-command for the attack. He was actually caught drug trafficking, but during recorded wiretaps, he was caught conversing with several known terrorists about his role in the bombings. His fingerprints were found at the bomb-making house, but he claimed he was just helping renovate it. He was convicted for all the murders and sentenced to 42,924 years in prison. 29 other suspects were convicted of crimes related to supporting the terrorist organization. Many were found guilty of the crimes and being part of a terrorist organization and were sentenced to roughly 12 years. Others were acquitted of their involvement in the crimes, but found guilty of being members of a terrorist organization and given roughly 10-year sentences. So this, this was kind of interesting because you'd read through the list and you'd say, okay, well, this guy was convicted of, of being involved in the crimes and of being a member of the terrorist group, and so he gets 12 years. And then you read the next guy being, well, he was acquitted of crimes related to the bombings, but he was found guilty of being a member of a terrorist group, so he's given roughly a 10-year sentence. So I guess, you know, if, if you were on this list of, of potential suspects for this bombing, you were going to prison one way or the other. You were, you were either going to be convicted of being a member of a terrorist organization just by the sheer fact that you're arrested in in association with these crimes and as a part of a terrorist organization or you're getting a couple more years if they found that you were somehow involved in the bombings and the debate over the actual terrorist group responsible for all the bombings still continues today it'll be easiest to break it down by the possible suspect groups and discuss the likelihood of their involvement so as i mentioned before the closest terrorist group to home was the eta this group was known as uskadi ta Akatasuna and was active from 1959 to 2018 and this was an armed revolutionary terrorist group that wanted the liberation of the Basque people from portions of Spain and France that they claimed were their ancestral homeland. So basically you have these Basque people that they don't recognize being Spanish, they don't recognize being French, they recognize being Basque and they wanted an actual homeland country of Basque. So they wanted a sovereign homeland like the one that was granted to Kosovo or Scotland. And ETA are most famous for perpetrating small car bombs like the Irish Republican Army and, and also doing other things like the Irish Republican Army, like ambushing the, the police and conducting kidnapping for ransom to finance their activities. Also, like the Irish Republican Army, they were known for giving warnings before bombings and never conducted a bombing on this scale. And after the bombings, the ETA were very open that they supported the act of terror against what they viewed as a repressive Spanish government, but they denied any responsibility. This was believed to be valid as ETA was known to be truthful about denying or claiming responsibility for various incidents. The ETA was disarmed in 2017 and dissolved in 2018. So the focus of the investigation landed more on Islamic extremist groups. While Al-Qaeda had been taken early credit for the attacks, they were known for falsely taking credit as a form of recruitment and support. The suspects that were located had loose ties to Al-Qaeda and had possibly been trained in bomb-making in Afghanistan, but many government officials did not believe Al-Qaeda was directly behind the attacks. As most of the suspects were Moroccan, it was surmised that the group could be operating as part of Morocco's radical Islamic combat group. The problem with this theory is that Moroccans had been somewhat ostracized by Al-Qaeda from as early as the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. Many young Islamic Moroccans answered the call from the Taliban to fight for Islam by traveling to Afghanistan to aid in ousting the Soviets during the 1980s. Seen as extremely foreign to the Middle Eastern Muslims, the Moroccans did not gain much power within the organization 
and most eventually returned to their home countries where they served a more logistical role. They were assigned with tasks such as securing supplies, obtaining legal paperwork, and providing shelter for members of Al-Qaeda. They had not been known to form the strong, independent power structure needed to carry out this level of attack. Basically, they were known more as workers and followers than soldiers and leaders. But a leader in the study of terrorist groups and their functions believed that the group obtained a level of self-autonomy and with some assistance from the Al-Qaeda, mainly in the bomb-making instruction, they were able to plan and carry out the attacks on their own. Because the formation of the group had been an organic, sporadic event, it lacked any solid structure, and when the leaders of the group all died in the apartment suicide bomb, the group as a whole dissolved. Further evidence of the possible Al-Qaeda involvement is that the attack occurred roughly 911 days after 9-11. I say roughly because if you account for the leap year in 2004, it was actually 912 days after, but as leap years are not observed in Islamic countries, it would have been 911 days on their calendars. So from what I've researched, the most likely series of events was a group of Al-Qaeda supporters that belonged to the Moroccan Islamic fighter group developed their own terror cell and plan, and with guidance and assistance from Al-Qaeda, they were able to complete the attack and then naturally dissolved after the fact. And this is, this, you know, I read this really long report from this a guy who studies these terrorist groups. And, and basically, this is the reason why terror um, networks can be so hard to fight, because you've got groups like Al-Qaeda that have very defined a network, leadership, sub-leaders, cells, all that kind of stuff. But then you've got all these different smaller associated groups uh, there's a, a bunch of different countries Syria Libya Morocco that have these these basically these associate groups these offshoots of al-qaeda and they don't often have as I mentioned before this structure they've always been kind of under the the taken under the wing of al-qaeda and they've provided material assistance to al-qaeda and kind of a gateway into Europe for terrorists from the Middle East to come through Morocco, Syria, Libya, and then get into Europe to conduct terror attacks, but they've never really been known for forming al-Qaeda, looking to this, these groups and saying, okay, well, you take 10, 20 guys, make up a plan and go attack the Spanish train, train lines. They felt like this was more of a Somebody rose as a leader, kind of naturally, organically, formed his own terror cell, made up this plan. They have connections to Al-Qaeda so they can get guys into Afghanistan to train how to make these bombs. They come back you know, with the, the help of the cell. And these were all guys that were also known to be drug traffickers. So they've got connections to be able to get guys in and out of countries, to get supplies in and out. Uh, they're financed uh, via the truck drug trafficking. So again, this is why they're so hard to fight because this is something that kind of came out of nowhere to a certain degree. Now we will talk about a little bit about some government or police failures, but for the most part, it's, it's difficult because even if you're monitoring the chatter from Al-Qaeda, there's nothing, no orders coming down from the terrorist organization to conduct this attack. It's all being done from the low levels. But the attacks were also hard to investigate because after they lost power in the March 14th election, the Partido Popular deleted almost all of the electronic files associated with the attacks and all that remained were paper documents. So there was three days of electronic reports and information and all that kind of stuff that was stored on computers and 
And when this party lost the election, they basically deleted, uh, I think it wasn't just stuff with the terrorist attacks, it was a whole bunch of stuff. It was basically the the toddler throwing the temper tantrum and deciding, okay, well, if you guys are taking over power, we're just gonna leave you with nothing. And so all they had left were some of the handwritten documents, paper documents associated with the attack. So that it was gonna be difficult because you're now three days behind and all the information you had is gone and then this was further hampered by the fact that the train cars that were damaged were ordered to be destroyed and the spanish police as a whole was found to have mishandled or ignored several key tips from informants that may have prevented the bombings the anti-terrorism officers were severely understaffed despite this being less than three years after 9-11 and during the early days of the war on terror the bombings led to spain increasing its counterterrorism services by over 35 percent in the year following the bombings the group had been effective in preventing any terrorist attacks of the same size and scope as the 2004 train bombings and saw to the ceasefire and dissolvement of the ETA. Only one large-scale terror attack occurred in Spain in the last 10 years, which involved two vans being driven into crowds of people in Barcelona. 17 people were killed, several terrorists were shot and killed, and three were arrested and put on trial for the attacks. Most members of the group tied to the 2004 Madrid bombings were released sometime around 2014 to 2018 and were deported to their home countries. Jamal Zogam, Atom Alganay, and Emilio Trachores had between 42,900 and 34,700 years remaining on their sentences, but due to Spanish law, the most they can serve is 40 years, so they will all be eligible for release in March of 2044. But that is the case of the 2004 Madrid train bombings thank you guys for listening stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com you can also find me at truebluecrimeproductions on facebook and support me via patreon at truebluecrimeproductions so that's it for today guys thanks for listening talk to you later goodbye